Hello and welcome to the Respecting Your Elders podcast. We are recording here at the Weston Bonaventure Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. And today my guest is a longtime friend, Chris Dugan. Chris, thanks for being on the show. No problem. Happy to be here. So let's just get right into it. Where, where did you grow up? Where are you from? I was originally born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Was there for about three months of my life. Moved to mainline uh, just outside of Philadelphia for uh, a couple of years. And then uh, when I was about three years old, my family moved to Reston, Virginia. And, there we, and I've stayed in the Northern Virginia area ever since. Now, what were your parents doing in Michigan and Philly? Uh, my father was a company rep for... Uh, I believe it was Canada Dry Ginger Ale, which brought us up to uh, up to uh, Michigan originally, uh, and then he got a job with the Dow Corporation back then. That was the Cordis Corporation before it was acquired by Dow, uh, and uh, spent some time in Philadelphia working for uh, the company reps there, and then moved on to. Um, uh, Northern Virginia, uh, and he became a lobbyist for the same company. And so he was a political lobbyist. Can you tell if this is recording very well or not? All right. Testing, testing, one, two, three. There it is. So maybe we should just get closer to the microphone. Yeah, just run, run, a, uh, run a check back. So you were saying your uh, father worked for Dow? Yeah, uh, he worked for Cordis Corporation, and then he became a lobbyist. And when we moved to Northern Virginia, um, placed ourselves in Reston, uh, and he worked um, in between um, various government offices in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, he served as a lobbyist for uh, the Cordis Corporation, and to the best of my knowledge, he was involved with um, trying to make sure that the laws didn't prevent uh, uh, selling a lot of products for that medical company uh, through Cordestow. It had to do with um, uh, kidney dialysis um, and the reuse of filters, and he lobbied against reuse of filters, so uh, they would have to buy a new filter every time. Uh, and. You know, uh, I guess uh, under the idea that he was advocating for dialysis patients uh, on their behalf uh, so they wouldn't have to have these reused filters so they got fresh, clean filters every time that their blood was uh, filtered. So, Well, that's a noble cause. Uh, I think your brother and I would, my brother and you would have a lot to talk about then because he's in that same field like we were talking about before the show. Yeah. And then your mom? Uh, my mom was originally a school teacher um, and taught. Uh, she was a stay-at-home mom up and while she was having me up in Michigan, uh, and then uh, also a stay-at-home mom. And then she worked as a teacher, starting I believe in Philadelphia. And then uh, when she moved down, when we moved down to Northern Virginia, she became a real estate agent. So real estate was booming in Reston, Virginia, which nobody had ever heard of. 
Uh, and so she was part of um, part of that whole big movement of selling real estate, and she got involved in a company called Wellborn and then uh, moved all around. Eventually, she wound up kind of combining both, and she ended up teaching uh, and bringing, uh, was in charge of onboarding real estate agents uh, for most of the time that I was in school. So both parents worked while I was uh, in Northern Virginia, while I was being raised, pretty much. Nice. Um, my only association with Reston is we used to play them in soccer sometimes. How far was that outside of D.C.? An hour? Um, nowadays, yeah, it's probably an hour. But, I mean, as the crow flies, it's uh, Reston is, uh, so there's two airports that serve Washington, D.C. There's Reagan National and Washington Dulles. Uh, it's closer to Washington Dulles, but it's in between, Reagan National and Washington Dulles, uh, right in between there. It's a planned community, so it's, uh, just kind of emerged. There's a lot of trees, tons of neighborhoods, and a lot of diversity. About 25 minutes out, outside of D.C. The team that we played against had this giant goalie. I think his name was Armando, and he had big, blonde, bright, frizzy hair before it was cool. Right on. The only thing I remember about playing soccer in Reston, I remember I was on the Green Dragons, and... Uh, I think I heard about you guys. Well, you might have. You definitely heard about our goalie and my teammate, uh, Grant Hill. Really? Yeah, played for the Detroit Pistons. Yeah, of and, course. And wound up going and getting involved in the Orlando Magic. Yeah, and, and he's uh, a TV personality. Yeah, and his father, Calvin Hill. They, he, was in my, he was in my school. We grew up together. Wow. Yeah, so he would bring his dad in, uh, Calvin Hill, um, who would NBA come in. player? Huh? Was he an NFL No, he player? was an NFL player. Okay, that's he, Yeah, right. he played for uh, the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, and that's then what I thought. Did some associative stuff with the Washington Redskins, but didn't play for the Washington Redskins. Mm -hmm. But were like new Joe Gibbs and like new all those guys. Uh, and so he would come in with a Super Bowl ring, and that was I remember that was one of Grant Hill's like show and tell things, is he would show his dad Super Bowl ring. How do you top that? You can't follow Grant Hill at show and tell. No, no, no. no. And he you let him bring the ring to school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we net. So the interesting thing was, uh, right around the sixth grade, we stopped seeing Grant, and what he was doing was he was practicing with the JV local high, high school team in basketball. At 12. Yeah, and then by the time he was in seventh grade, he was uh, working out um, with the varsity team uh, before, of course, he went to UNC and then the rest Duke. is history. Or Duke, that's right. Uh, Duke and the rest is history. Wow, yeah, yeah he's um, one of those. I don't know if he is in the Hall of Fame. His career was cut short early with injuries. Yeah, his ankle he, injury. You know what? I think the Basketball Hall of Fame, they include college as well. Mm -hmm. So I think just based on his college career alone, he'll yeah. be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, he was he was great. Yeah. Um, that's pretty cool. And um, he was straight-laced too, man. He was not, he was, never did party like his parents. Like he went to public school first off, and he was from money, but he, you know, spent the time in there with us in the public school. Um, he was in a lot of the GT classes. I think he really got into music. His dad put him like in a bunch, or his mom actually uh, was really into music. So I think he got into um, violin, if I'm not mistaken. I remember uh, him picking up the trombone uh, when we were in elementary school, and he just did that for fun because we all liked the big brass instruments and it made a neat noise. Uh, but he really got into like the arts uh, but he never, like, he was not one of those showboat guys. He didn't drive, like, the nicest car to school. Uh, you would never know. 
Yeah. Uh, that he was like amazing at his craft and pretty much anything he tried, he did. One of those people. Yeah. Yeah. One of those. Well, he was, he was a role model without really us knowing he was a role model. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He brought mm-hmm. the standard up. But he always seems calm and collected and pretty straight laced and mm-hmm. genuine. Um, uh, at my school, when I was in fourth grade, Jonathan Ogden, the Hall of Fame lineman, was mm-hmm. a senior. Mm. So I met him. And then I saw him in Vegas a few years ago, and I, I just was like, St. Albans! And he turned and looked, and he was like, hey, what's up, man? And I was like, oh, do you remember this girl and this girl? He's like, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course not. <laughs> okay, well, St. Good. Albans, anyway. <laughs> Good seeing you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, always look up to you. Yeah. Um, and then Nick Lowry went to my high school. He's a Hall of Fame kicker for the Chiefs. And a couple other teams, I think, got his autograph. Nice. And Adrian Dantley, the NBA player, his son went to my school a lot younger than me. Oh, and then Al Gore's son was a year below me. Right on. um, I'm sure there's other people, but I'm just trying to think of... Well, when you go to a school like that, you're bound to... Right. As I was talking, I realized, oh, yeah, there's a lot of... Yeah. I mean, it's. I'm sure Children you went with famous people. diplomats, kids, and like yeah, people who went the on German ambassador, right? Marion Barry's son went there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, forget about that. <laughs> um, so okay, so you're in Reston. You, what? You, you don't remember Philly at all, right? No, not really. I mean, I remember actually my first memory ever uh, is there, and I remember uh, my first memory of my life is in uh, in that house in the backyard, looking up, spinning around and around until I literally could not stand and falling, thinking that was incredibly interesting because the world kept spinning around as I laid there. That's my first memory. You must like roller coasters. I do like roller coasters, actually. Um, I like making my own roller coasters more, but yeah. What do you mean? So... Uh, I ended up going into flying, right. flying airplanes and instructing. Makes and, sense. Uh, and especially when I was flying what we call general aviation, like the little, uh, the little small single engine airplanes, it was one of the first things I realized is when you're in control of three dimensions, you can definitely make your own course every time, especially if it's just you and the instructor. And a lot of the maneuvers you learn early on are way cooler than roller coasters because it's kind of cool to think, the only thing that separates you from like 5,000 feet of like nothing is uh, less than a millimeter of sheet metal. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who's, are you an adrenaline junkie, you think? No. No, not at all. Not at all. Because it's, it's in a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like, I like adrenaline and I like what I've come to refer to as flow uh, and all flow sports. Yeah. Uh, uh, There's so. that book, Flow, by Mahali... Sitson Mahaliers. So the the person the person I think is who's credited uh, for that for that term is a man by the name of uh, Nihai Chinksetmihai, out of I think it's the University of uh, one of the uh, one of the Chicago Nihai Chinksetmihai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting name. It's it's and it does it's not spelled the way it sounds because um, I think of Nihai as like the drink. Um, and it's a different letter mm-hmm. for the to make the same sound. J O H N. Yeah, something like something like that actually. 
but he coined that phrase, flow. Uh, and then uh, a man by the name of Stephen Kotler uh, wrote a book called The Rise of Superman, which goes into a lot of the science behind the active sports mm -hmm. and performance. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I, when I say the word flow, I'm kind of referring to it in that state. It's, uh, and it's, it's kind of identified as like deep embodiment with a perceived threat uh, with an application of uh, some level of mastery or intelligence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that you can probably find flow in knitting. Because it's perceived. It's not an actual threat. It's a perceived threat. Uh, like what would be the perceived threat with knitting, for example? That you're going to screw up the next oh, stitch. See. Like pressure. Yeah. Some level High of pressure. Space. Yeah. Um, yeah have you ever gone skydiving? I haven't. But the first officer that I'm flying with now is actually a professional skydiver. He does it and he's done thousands of jumps and teaches it around the world. Is he trying to talk you into it? He is. It seems, a con so my profession right now is I'm an airline pilot. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, to me, it almost seems like a conflict of interest of like not landing a perfectly good airplane, but like jumping out of it. Right. It just car yeah. karma wise. Yeah. Doesn't, I, I would do it. Your whole deal is staying on the plane and getting yeah. the plane <laughs> to the ground. Right. It, it just seems like it would be almost like selling out. Right. A little bit of jumping yeah. out of a good you're, airport. You're on the side of the people that stay on planes. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not. I'm not like morally opposed to it. I yeah. would do it. Uh, it's just a middle finger to your way of life. Yeah. Well, or if I was in an airplane, I mean, honestly, like most of the time, I wanted to log as much time as possible, like flying it. Mm -hmm. So jumping out of it seemed a little counterproductive for mm -hmm. my career. Mm -hmm. And then now that I've been in the career and been doing it for a while. Uh, I just never was tempted to jump out of it. I mean, all I really have to do to like really skydive anytime is just like cut the power and like let the air, let gravity do its thing, and I'm refund. It just so happens it's me surrounded by you right. know thousands of tons of or hundreds of tons of metal and fuel just falling at the same time. Hopefully, you don't do that very often. Cut the power on the plane uh, every time you land. Oh. Yeah. 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 Oh. Every well, time you land. That's one of the million things I don't know about flying airplanes. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay, so you're in Reston, and what was Reston like? So growing up in Reston was interesting. So Reston was designed, as I said, as a planned community. And so what the original intent was back in the 60s and 70s was uh, to integrate. Integration was the big thing. Mm -hmm. um, Racially. Racially, racial integration, as well as uh, pretty much all classes of socioeconomic interweaving. So the way it was zoned or created and kind of designed as a city was um, there was going to be uh, kind of the higher-end neighborhoods, but in order for the higher-end neighborhood to get their zoning or, uh, cleared, there had to be, it had to be within a certain proximity of a lower income. And so scattered throughout Reston, it's, you know, in most cities, low-income areas are in one area, higher income, and there's, like, the train track kind of phenomenon. Right, like a mile, Eminem, uh, that's a, that's a, Well, yes. Uh, that's more of industrial. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of evolved. Just and so this was... Right, exactly. Exactly. And so in inside of... 
Uh, hear that lightning? And yeah. Thunder? And thunder. Yeah, yeah, it's like... Typical L.A. weather. <laughs> yeah, as it was snowing this morning with the hail. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is like one of two days this happens here. Or Every decade, yeah. Yeah. The man in the lobby said he was afraid because the hail was hitting the, the glass ceiling. Yeah. Over the lobby. It was loud. I told him to man up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at least it's not earthquakes, I guess. So you got a job to do. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> take it. So, uh, so growing up in Reston, I was constantly surrounded by um, uh, various other cultures and ethnicities, uh, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just black and white. It was uh, Asian, even back then, uh, and in the '60s and '70s. You know, the Hispanic community tended to be very, very kind of localized into themselves, and Reston actually served as a really good place for that. So. Grew up with a lot of different, uh, a lot of different um, uh, cultures. Yeah, lots of Latinos, lots of Asian, uh, Middle Easterners. Not so much back then. That mm-hmm. came in later, mm-hmm. um, and now especially, especially the uh, Indian community has really grown and mm-hmm. done uh, done a lot out in that that side of Northern Virginia. Uh, but uh, a lot of uh, African American as well as uh, us, just white. But it wasn't like white was dominant mm-hmm. at all, mm-hmm. uh, which was a little bit strange, but definitely um, was kind of fun, mm-hmm. actually. Cool. My neighborhood was predominantly white, ironically. Just the, the small little neighborhood I lived in mm-hmm. was predominantly white, but we were surrounded. And like a lot of the people we would end up going to play football with and uh, all my football player, you know, team members, because I played football in high school uh-huh. there, uh-huh. Um, it was not predominantly white. Which was unique to Northern Virginia, because Northern Virginia, especially around like the suburban Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. was predominantly white. Mm-hmm. So there we would go in. Fairfax and yep, Fairfax was predominantly white. Springfield, yep, uh, and more towards uh, Herndon mm-hmm. was definitely predominantly white. Uh, and now they're more. Now it's more. But Reston was kind of the first mover in that. And is that? Did you start to learn Spanish as a kid in the neighborhood? No, I, I picked up. Uh, I picked up Spanish um, when, uh, I guess I was a kid, but uh, working jobs. And uh, back then, there was a huge, huge influx in Virginia of specifically El Salvadorian. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of political unrest going on down there. And so there were a lot of El Salvadorians that would come into Northern Virginia, Alexandria, Arlington. And I got a job as a laborer. My first job was cleaning uh, human waste out of... Uh, paint buckets. Uh, human waste? Human waste, yeah. Guys would shit. So back then it was not required for uh, the contractor to get Don's Johns. And so oh, we worked in wow. remodeling um, and remodeling in D.C. I always called them um, Jiffy Johns. Yeah, Jiffy Johns or the Porta Johns. That was just the brand, the first yeah. brand that I was familiar with. Yeah, Don's John was the one in... in Virginia, yeah, uh, but the porta potty, the, the little porta potties, yeah, yeah, didn't have them, didn't have them. So what they would do is they would take the old mud buckets or paint buckets, uh, and then they would put them in like one of the side rooms, and then that would be just the thing everybody shit in. And at the end of the day, they'd put the cap on it and then throw it outside the property. Uh, and my job, the contractor wanted to keep those buckets because he knew that's what people were pissing and shitting in. So my job was to actually, my first job was to clean them out. How does this tie into Spanish? The way this ties into Spanish was if I learned Spanish and I could speak to the foreman or speak to the owner of the company, 
then I could get in charge of a lot of the a lot of the Latino guys who didn't speak any English. And so I could communicate with them. And so almost serving as a translator made me foreman. Mm -hmm. The other thing was, is if you wanted to get anything done in terms of tiling or know how to do anything in terms of plastering, you were not going to trust, you know, uh, at least back then, uh, uh, anybody other than the Latino guys, because they were very, very skilled. So they could teach me a ton mm -hmm. of stuff about how to get that, get that work done. So, and that's, uh, that's actually how I picked it up. Same thing in the kitchen. It was the same dynamic when I worked mm -hmm. in catering as well. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're the foreman, you don't have to throw the excrement out anymore. Get someone else to do it. No, exactly. No, exactly. That's exactly right. Or you get you know, the pick of the jobs where you're going to be able to take care of your guys. And the interesting thing was, is if you took care of the guys, like they totally would love you. Like all it would take is as simple as like buying them lunch and asking a few kind questions, mm -hmm. letting them, giving them a high, higher level of autonomy than they had. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's in their best interest to have me on their jobs as well. So right. it worked out really well. We ended up getting great jobs, like doing like really advanced stuff like doing uh, fireplace um uh, fly fireplace conc uh, masonry work which is like really it's mm -hmm. more technical and than it sounds expensive probably uh yeah mm -hmm. yeah um and when what point of your life were you doing that so in, still in high school no so when i was in high school i had a bit of a i had a bit of a uh ran into some trouble um and uh and uh, found myself in um, uh, in trouble my sophomore or I guess my freshman year. I tried football and tried doing all that stuff, and then I got involved. Uh, yeah, how old were you when you started playing football? Uh, my freshman year. So what is that? Age thirteen, fourteen? Yeah, fourteen maybe. Yeah. Um, well, I was young for my age, so it would have been thirteen. Okay. Is when I started the uh -huh. summer mm -hmm. uh, that I was thirteen and mm -hmm. turned fourteen mm -hmm. in December. Uh, yeah. Um, and I, cause I'd always been kind of young for my grade right. cause my, I'm a December birthday. Yeah. So I was like the four year old for half the year of kindergarten. Yeah. It went like that. I get it. Yeah. So, uh, but and yeah, that was elementary school. Anything stick out memory wise other than Grant Hill dunking on people at age eight? No, I mean, yeah. Um, so I lost all interest in school completely. Um, I was diagnosed with a learning disability and uh, uh, got really stressed out. My dad got super sick uh, and my sixth grade year was a complete disaster. Uh, fifth grade, you know, you can kind of get through. Third grade was kind of fit in. That's when my dad started getting sick. But by the time I was in sixth grade, it was a complete disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's actually um, when uh, drugs and alcohol kind of came into the scene as well mm -hmm. for me, mm -hmm. which was going to come to an abrupt halt by the time I was in, uh, in the end of my freshman year. Okay. So I don't know if you remember what you were thinking at the time or like, what was that like? Like, I'm not even sure how I should go deeper into that. So... It was essentially, um, I'll use a quote that I heard my oldest daughter, uh, she's now 15, but when she was like seven or eight, 
she had a Girl Scout overnight, and she had this quote because she couldn't deal. She just couldn't stand it. And her quote was this. She got, a, a long story short, I had to go pick her up from this Girl Scout thing. And she's in the back of the car, and she looked like she was happy when I picked her up, and she got into the car, and she melted, and I was like, what's wrong? She's, she says, you wouldn't understand. I said, no, 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 try me. I said, I have some experience in feeling awkward, especially as a kid. So you wouldn't understand. I said, I, please try me. She's like, all right. And so this is her quote. She said, I feel like everybody in the world is connected in a way that I'm not, and they have something that I'm definitely missing. Uh, and it was almost like a challenge, right? And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> how am I going to answer this? Mm -hmm. Because her next sort of thing was uh, waiting for me to say something. And she said, uh, she said nothing else after that. And my response to that was, I understand. And she was surprised by that. And she said, well, what did you do? Now, I learned a long time ago, especially in raising kids, is just answer the question or say as little as possible. Because mm -hmm. sometimes we can over-information. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she said, what did you do? And I said... I made a lot of mistakes behind that. And so that, I started making those mistakes in about the sixth grade uh, and hit kind of, I guess, a technical bottom or at least a point where I was done making decisions uh, by the time I was at the end of my ninth grade, beginning of my 10th, end of my ninth grade, beginning of my 10th grade year. Uh, is I felt like everybody in the world, uh, like my daughter said, was connected in a way that I wasn't, and they had something that I was missing. Mm -hmm. And I felt almost perpetually like that, with, with some exceptions. Mm -hmm. And the exceptions were usually using outside substances like drugs and alcohol to at least make some form of kind of connection inside so that I could feel, for lack of a better word, grounded. Mm -hmm. And that's where the mistakes were made. And did those things just sort of give you relief to continue to just chill out some? Uh, yeah, that's an understatement uh, to say. It really kind of gave me an experience, uh, an altered experience that made me feel completely connected or at least gave me uh, the illusion of feeling completely connected. And probably I was just inebriated to the point where I just didn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. But quite honestly, it gave me, it took away that feeling of disconnection. It might not have given me a real sense of connection, but at least it gave me uh, a feeling of connection mm -hmm. or what I thought connected felt like. The problem was is I'm in a drunken state and uh, then I have this little thing where I have an allergy where once I start, I can't stop and then, <laughs> uh, and then I go into a blackout and then it becomes very problematic. But quite honestly, in a blackout state, it becomes more of your problem than mine. Uh, so uh, clearly this is going to raise problems for your average, uh, I guess, age 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15-year-old. That's going to create problems. And you still drink like that today? No, no. So, and when I said it came to an abrupt halt, I mean, ultimately, that decision was made. So I found myself um, in a position where I absolutely, uh, if I was going to do anything further in life, I was either going to end the life or I had to find something else uh, that could make me feel connected. And so that decision was kind of made for me uh, that, you know, I stopped drinking and uh, stopped 
doing any any type of mood altering drug that you know for the sake of feeling connected I found uh, other ways of doing that and then um, so then how did you get from there to where you are now so that's a long road I honestly did not expect to do anything quite honestly I ran high school um, first of all was do you do you have any crazy like did you play football blacked out or anything no what's crazy is I played football and I got good at it because uh-huh. time plus effort equals position? results so I played offensive and defensive tackle mm-hmm. and started both ways for um, I guess a triple-a school is South Lakes because it was a big school mm-hmm. which was kind of uh, I guess it was kind of an accomplishment and I remember coach Naquin awesome dude um, I remember we played one in one game and this isn't crazy. This is just kind of depressing, but mm-hmm. I'll give it to you anyway. Uh, we played our, our we played our rival, and ultimately, uh, at the end of the game, even though the team lost the game, the coaches uh, sort of debrief for the whole team was: if everybody would play like Dugan, we would win every game. I've gotten that before. I quit the next day. I quit football the next day. I quit the team. Why? Because that was so overwhelming. Uh, because I'd reached, I knew I had reached kind of a pinnacle. And quite honestly, I couldn't, I knew I couldn't deal with stress the pressure. Of living up and to the that. stress of constantly like having to defend that. Like now I was first string, I was starting, it was going to go somewhere. And, uh, and so I lied to the coach. I told him my parents were making me quit because my grades were suffering. Now, granted, my grades were suffering and yeah. they sucked, but it wasn't because of football. Uh-huh. Um, but that was just one place where I, I kind of enjoyed being part of something in obscurity. Uh, and I definitely didn't want to be leading or any of that because I wasn't in a position to, I had nothing really to really energize that. Right. So, uh, so I quit. Get by. So I quit. Um, and it was much easier because I could do whatever I wanted to do and party and yeah, I'm sure things not got worse then because you take away that structured outlet and it opened up. So that's, that's kind of about one of the craziest, uh, but that's kind of a mindset. Um, it was a consistent mindset with kind of how I ran my life. And I, I treated school the same way. Being a teenager is challenging. Um, yeah. I quit football. Well, I was playing soccer all the time, so I sort of felt pressure like I needed to play soccer year-round. Mm-hmm. But my sixth grade, when I was 12, our team scored three touchdowns, and I scored two of them. But when they had the little award ceremony at the end of the season, there was three awards. I didn't get any of them. And yep. so that sort of like tilted the scales where I was like, screw this, I'm playing soccer. Yeah. Like when you're a teenager, like the littlest thing can like throw you off. You oh, know? yeah. Because um, looking back, I'm like, I feel like that's a stupid reason to quit playing football. Yeah. And then same thing with basketball. My sophomore year, I quit because my coach didn't put me in the game. Usually I would get in the, I was the guy that hustled. I was a little bit like the Rudy, like, I would win the sprints, and I would, you know, take the charge, and, and the coach would say, Callahan's the only one out there trying. Yeah. But one game, I had friends in the in the rafters, and I just didn't get put in the whole game, mm. and I quit. Same thing. Yeah. And in hindsight, it's like, no, you want the guy to persevere and hang in there and work harder. Like, Michael yeah. Jordan got cut from his freshman high school basketball right. team. That's right. And then he came back, and he's Michael Jordan. Yeah. So... Yeah, in my case, I went back and uh, was pretty much resigned that 
Uh, I was also diagnosed with a learning disability too mm -hmm. early on in the fifth grade. And so I was just sort of resigned to the fact that um, I wasn't academically going to amount to much. And at the time, that really meant as a person I wasn't going to amount to much. And I just kind of sort of accepted that as my reality. And so it was really kind of designed, all right, well, this is going to be of my design and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Uh, and I honestly was waiting for something. Uh, I didn't know what I was waiting for, but I was waiting for something at that time. Um, but uh, but I, I'd pretty much given up on school and mainly just did it as uh, accomplished school more as a to-do list, as just check the box as opposed yeah. to learn anything. Just get people off my back so I can do what I want That's the exactly rest of right. my time. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, your, your body's changing. There's girls. Like our friend Frank used to say, everyone, when you're a teenager, everyone treats you like a kid but expects you to act like an adult. Right. And you feel like it's always going to be that way. Yeah. Like that one girl that I like, that's the only girl I'm ever going to like. That's exactly right. That group of friends doesn't like me, then I'm never going to be. And it's like that, um, it's get be it gets better campaign. Yeah. It's like, man, just because I have Facebook friends, but I don't really talk to anyone from high school hmm. anymore. But when you're in high school, you think these are going to be my friends forever. Right. right. Well, even in high school, I didn't think that. Yeah. I honestly, so what happened was, is at the end of that freshman year, I sort of, Somewhere between got kicked out of and my parents decided to move from Reston out to Sterling, which they seemed like a good idea at the time. Now, Sterling was very much of the old school. It was literally going back in time socially, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. predominantly white, very much a corn-fed culture. Like farmland? Uh, almost? It was almost considered that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I I'm sure a lot of people there and their families had worked in agriculture, but most of it was much more in trades and in sort of, uh, it seemed like a downgrade, although the house we moved into was bigger. Um, but for example, the road that my parents bought their house, uh, nobody knew it. Today it's known as Potomac View Road. Back then, everybody in the school knew it as N, the N word, Mountain Road. Oh. So you live off of N Mountain Road. Wow. Yeah. And I walked in from like literally. Multicultural. Multicultural, like EU, which was a, uh, almost like an old school junkyard band kind of. Oh, yeah. Pre-hip-hop. EU played at our high school. Go to go. Yeah. To I go into this place in Sterling, Virginia, and these kids say I live off of N Mountain Road, and you can smoke in the school. Uh, everybody showered like communally and picked on each other. Like, like there was the one kid whipping towels, whipping towels and like literally beating them. And it was a culture that it was very much an old school. Uh, and I was already in a dark place, didn't have any friends, didn't have that sense of connection and quite honestly, wasn't interested in it. My parents felt sorry for me. So they bought me a moped. So there I am living on N mountain road, driving to the school that I absolutely hated uh, and, uh, the only thing that was kind of cool about it was I could smoke. Mm -hmm. And so I got to smoke cigarettes with like teachers in the smoking court. You couldn't smoke in class, yeah. but quite honestly, that didn't stop the rest of the kids because the rest of the kids were chewing tobacco mm -hmm. and the teachers did not care mm -hmm. if they dipped in class. Wow. That's how it was. Sounds like the breakfast club or some, the smoking in school actually sounds kind of cool. 
other than dying of lung cancer. Yeah, I, yeah. No, exactly. Actually, that was kind of uh, a nice break for you me. You don't see Grant Hill doing that. No, Grant Hill was not smoking in class. I would not be surprised if Grant Hill never had a cigarette in his life. But th- that was not my experience, nor was it this school. The, but, the, like, nobody was expected to show up on the first day of deer season. Nobody was expected to show wow. up at school for the whole county. Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. And so did you finish high school? Barely. Uh, and I think what they did is they just sort of let me graduate, but I wasn't even sure I was going to graduate until like two weeks before graduation. My friend Josh and I were going to uh, quit school together, and we were just going to get like the equivalent of like um, a Eurorail pass except on uh, Amtrak, and we were just going to live on trains and like quit school. It seemed like a good idea. Luckily, we had a That'd similar mentor who said that that's a terrible idea. You guys should finish school. I say forget the pass. Just jump on the train cars. That was our thought. It had much more promise. That had much more promise than what I was facing, even if I just barely graduated. You're the guy on the moped that nobody knows at school. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's that's exactly who I was. With the hammer pants. Yeah. Well, I was. People knew me because I I I definitely had some clashes. Uh, I had a clash with the largest. Uh, they were so the football team at the new high school uh, was the. Um, state champions for the single-A league. Uh, basically, they were state champion football team. Uh, and their offensive and defensive tackle was probably 150 pounds heavier than I was and probably seven or eight inches taller. Um, and uh, he ended up picking a fight with me, and there was no fight. Uh, that just wound up being a weird, weird scenario. But granted, I had immediate conflicts and then went, internal and dark for my junior and senior well uh, at least the beginning of my sophomore year uh, and into my uh, junior year things got better yeah um, much better actually Uh, but I got more involved in voluntary stuff and uh, by the time I came around to my senior year I didn't have to do anything except my core classes Mm -hmm. a couple of study halls and I was let out and so you did finish high school I did yeah and you mentioned Josh what would you guys do for fun? So there was a group of us. I ran into a bunch of guys um, who all kind of felt the same way. Uh, and we had, a, we had a bunch of common interests. Uh, and we were all committed to not really drinking or drugging at all. And we kind of built a fellowship like, around that. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, they became really most of... This is in Sterling? So no, I was living in Sterling at the time, but all those guys lived everywhere from uh, from Washington D.C. to Arlington. Um, so I mean, it's you know for a kid, it's it's light years away. But yeah, for me, so I got a job early on so I could afford a car, uh-huh. and then I would just go hang out with them in Vienna and Oakton. So back then, I lied about my age. So I had this secret that I always wanted to fly airplanes, uh-huh. and so I kind of intuitively knew to get around where airplanes are, so I got a Ever job. Ever since you were spinning in the yards in Philly. Yeah, I mean, basically, but it was a secret, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, in, in part of this sort of uh, renewal or renaissance of, you know, this destroyed high schooler's life, uh, I met some people who kind of challenged that and challenged my reasoning and brought me to something a little bit higher. And so um, I got more comfortable with the idea that, all right, well, maybe there's more to this life than just flunking out of school or screwing up. Maybe, and mountain. 
Yeah, and living on End Mountain with these, you know, smoking in the smoking court in Sterling. <laughs> the teachers. Yeah, and I had no interest in going to kill deer and all that stuff. So I just, I found guys that I really related to, and we kind of stuck together. Uh, and uh, and that's how that kind of grew. And what was the job? So the job was I worked at a company called Page Abjet, which is now called Signature Flight Support. But back then, it was just after... Um, uh, you know, they had these contracts for these foreign carriers. So, uh, Al Nippon Airways, uh, Japan Airlines, Lufthansa, uh, Saudi Airlines, which are Saudia, which is the Saudi Arabian flag carrier, um, and a couple of other airlines would contract this company. Well, this company handled all the ground servicing. So, my job was to work with the, um, what Dump they call the poop bucket out. So, the honey bucket guy, that guy actually had the best job. Uh, that's called the honey bucket. You're telling me there was a honey bucket guy at this job also? Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a honey bucket guy. I actually Man, this did is a different that. Different time. Yeah, yeah, no, I did that. I did that job, um, and the honey bucket guy got to always stay in a warm truck and was rarely like had to go out in the hot sweltering heat, or you know he got to have an air conditioning and a heated truck, and he would literally just pull up, stick the tube in the back of the airplane, dump the shit. My job was working on the working on the ramp initially. Um, loading bags mm-hmm. or working in the bag room filling up the containers to go into, Lug- uh, into luggage the airplane. Handler? So luggage handler, luggage loader, and then ultimately I graduated to cargo loader. At Dulles? At Dulles, mm-hmm. yeah. And what was the first car? So the first car was I bought my brother's pickup truck, a Mazda B2000 SE5. Uh, and What year? Uh, it was probably a 1987, 86 Mazda. Okay. Um, that I bought in 19... Your brother sold it to you? He didn't just give it to you? No, he, he sold it to me. None of us had money uh-huh. at all. Yeah. Um, and he How did he get the car? Uh, he worked. Uh-huh. He was a store detective for Bradley's. Store detective? Yeah, yeah. He was loss prevention guy. Okay. Uh, and... Uh, Magnifying glass? No, 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 no. He would just bust shoplifters and mm-hmm. worked, uh, worked to bust shoplifters mm-hmm. and got in a ton of fights. Basically, he was... Uh, was paid to fight for the store mm. uh, and literally got in fist fights pretty much once a week. In rural Sterling? No, so the Bradleys he worked at was in Fairfax. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is now a Home Depot and Fairfax Circle. But So yeah. a lot of housewives that were stuffing no? turkeys? Uh, yeah, uh, or um, like pretty hardened criminals, like stealing oh. stuff so they could afford to pawn it to their habit Fairfax oh I see because Fairfax is not a very lenient county no uh, it's not but it's but it's not lenient for a reason because there is a high level of crime Mm. there okay so the car was so the car was a Mazda B2000 and that was my truck a little pickup truck stick shift was my first car two two seats Uh, it had a bench so it was a single bench and a little pickup truck yeah Um, so you got room for the girl and the friend yeah yeah. Perfect. Yeah. The girl that didn't Third exist wheel. in Sterling. <laughs> the imaginary girl. Yeah. And what kind of music were you listening to? What kind of music did you like growing up? Back then, um, I was kind of all over the place. Uh, but I was in, at that time, I was probably still into, I think I was into reggae at that time. Yeah? So Peter Toth, uh, Yellow Man. Peter Tosh. Or Peter Tosh, yeah, yeah. Peter Tosh, Yellow Man, uh, um, Yellow Bob Man. Marley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, got, I was into that. Then I got a little into ska, and then I was into more poppy kind of 
Modern English. Um, I don't know modern English. What do they sing? Uh, I'll stop the world and melt with you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that Tears for Fears kind of yeah. vibe. Got a little bit of that. Um, but then I got Can't into you. no, and then I got into uh, kind of some of the rap at the time. I really enjoyed that from my rest and roots. Um, so like, are we talking Sugar Hill Gang, Run yes. DMC, yes, Beastie Boys, Dougie Fresh? Okay. Beastie Boys, yes, but Beastie Boys didn't. It it seemed too different for me. Like it seemed like they were trying to make fun of rap almost. Right, they were pretty silly. Yeah, at first, and it wasn't. Uh, but but I got more into um, uh, uh, into kind of the mainline rap back then, which was more like the Dougie, Dougie Fresh, Fresh yeah. Slick Rick. Yeah, and then yeah. it was like I don't know where we cross over because my first albums were Technotronic, Young MC. Yeah, Tone Loke. So that stuff kind of came later. Yeah. Uh, that was probably, uh, that was 88, 89. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, all that stuff would have worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. The nice. wild thing. Yeah. Okay. So then you left high school, you got your diploma. Got my high school degree uh, and, and pretty much moved out right away. Moved out of my parents' house. Then you're doing fireplaces and poop buckets? So I was 17 years old. Uh, freshly graduated from high school and worked construction, went right into construction mm -hmm. from working ramp. Uh, and I worked those jobs simultaneously. So I worked construction oh, wow. as well as working at Dulles as well. Okay. Look at you. Yeah. I've always, I've always had jobs since I was, my, my first job was, uh, selling shoes, uh, when I was 12. Wow. Yeah. It was easy back then to lie about your age and mm -hmm. I had a social security number and nobody would check. And the federal government never gave a crap. They wouldn't come in and say, hey, you're not legal to work because they're getting their taxes. Mm -hmm. So back then, like I would just miss, I would just, for their purposes, you could put the wrong birth date but give the right social security number and you were legal to work. Wow. So yeah, that's what I did. Just don't let your manager say, no one's working as hard as Chris. No, because I'd quit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so our friend Matt Fleming was telling me about all the jobs he had out in fired left and right he just got picked up i just sent him a congratulations on a new job he's got a really nice job now oh really yeah oh nice yeah I'll just give him a call yeah okay so then your what was the other job you said that you had after construction i guess the so catering yeah. i worked oh, catering, catering right. construction and airports mm -hmm. uh and then uh i started working on boats um because that paid. My friends wanted to move to the beach during the summers. Yeah. And by then I was in... City, Maryland. Well, so by then uh, I was in um, uh, Northern Virginia Community College. So I was in community college working mm -hmm. on an associate's degree. But here's the cool thing, is my mom kind of became a real advocate for my education, and she loved the fact that I had fallen in love with flying. So how was I going to combine sort of education with flying and like make all this work and my mom uh, found and discovered this aviation program through Northern Virginia Community College and we drove out there to like interview and it was this this old guy old retired FBI agent named R.W. Harmon uh, and Pat McCann and those two guys got together and started this program at Northern Virginia Community College an aviation program and was going to build it around an associate's degree. The brilliance behind what they did was they set it up so that every piece of that curriculum worked into what was a and what still is a very 
world-renowned aviation college called Embry-Riddle out of Daytona Beach in Prescott, Arizona, as well as a bunch of worldwide campuses. So I sort of, you know, my passion for aviation took me smack at the heart of academics. This time it was different, and I freaking loved it. My mom was so jazzed about it uh, because I was so jazzed. Uh, and I'd fallen in love with flying from my little demo flight. The interesting thing was is I'd always wanted to fly airplanes even before I ever flew in an airplane. I knew I never, I never wanted to do anything different. And so, you know, we sat there, and so he kind of charted the course of what was available to me and all the opportunities, and I was so stoked to exploit it because it was affordable through a community college. So I'm paying community college uh, rates and doing anything I could, and my work ethic at the time was like, you just do whatever it takes to be able to pay rent. And that's what I did. But I applied that to aviation, and it, it fit like a glove. All of a sudden, I'm like logging time. Within two years, I was flying Learjets mm -hmm. uh, of my you know commercial. I guess three years into my education, I'm flying Learjets. There I am at you know 21 years old uh, flying a Learjet for uh, a family in, uh, at a Manassas airport. Wow. Yeah, it was yeah. really, really cool. Mm -hmm. And Manassas kind of kind of became our home. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really a confluence. And there was a bunch of us that were kind of in that spot. Uh, and we sort of elevated each other. Um, and that, my Spanish actually kind of came from that too. Because mm -hmm. working, on, working on the ramp and working online, a lot of the Latino community um, or a lot of the folks that worked there were Latino uh, and, but bilingual. Mm -hmm. And so I could like hang out and, you know, chat with them too. Nice. So, it, it worked out. My brother-in-law is an airplane mechanic, mm -hmm. I think, at that airport in Manassas, maybe. Maybe Dulles for UPS. That would be probably Dulles. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. Agree. yeah. They live out um, past Manassas in Midland, Virginia. Uh-huh. Sure. But I remember being at your house um, working on an audition for Guys and Dolls with our oh, friend yeah. Noah. Yeah. And I remember you sitting there. Studying. I don't know if you were studying for JetBlue. No, I was studying. I remember that. I yeah. remember that because I was making audio tapes. Because remember, I'm, uh, I'm sort of, I would. What I was doing it was you learn that way. Yeah. So I was making flashcards, but I was doing it on audio tape, mm -hmm. and that way, when I'm driving to work, I could pop in the audio tape, and it was challenge response. Right. Mm -hmm. What's the maximum takeoff, or you know, it could be anything. You know, how long is a you know, uh, is a area forecast good for what does it cover? I mean, there's a ton of stuff. I was studying for the ATP, the airline transport pilot, which mm -hmm. is sort of after you become a commercial pilot, you have to go through a bunch of stuff. Sort of the coup de grace of all certifications is called the ATP. And I was studying for the ATP written. So do you think we were we annoying you or were we sort of a nothing nice was annoying me noise in the background? It was just part of part of the static. Yeah, because I wound up working. Uh, one of the things I did that worked really well. You're talking about the play. By and the what, way, I didn't get cast in Guys and Dolls. You did not. No. Now, were you an understudy? I was nothing. I. You know what I was? Huh. I was the curtain boy, the curtain bitch. Really, my wife. I pushed a button. Okay, get this. Yeah. Between every scene, we would close the curtain, which would take like 45 seconds between each scene, right? Yeah. And. Not only was my job merely to push a button to close the curtain, yeah. but I had to wait to get permission from Beth to push the button. So I was literally... So you were just a button guy. I was you a were button. the button. I was, I was a button. You were a button. 
I didn't even have the autonomy to know, like, the scene ended, I can push the button. I had to wait for Beth to turn and give Say, me the... Give me the uh, maybe nod. once or twice I did it on my own, and I felt it was that uh, flow experience where yeah. it was the pressure. <laughs> the perceived threat. Yeah, yeah, so it's funny, because uh, the person you just mentioned, I was... Uh, I don't... We might have been dating at that time. We dated on and off for, like, four or five years. You know when you're a teenager... Everyone that's older than you, you know everyone that's dating everyone. Mm -hmm. And everyone that's younger than you, you could give two shits. You have no so idea. I could tell you everyone that was dating everyone back yeah, then. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure Beth was with John? Jack. Jack. Beth was with Jack? In fact, I asked... Oh, yeah, that was a short time. That out. was right... I, I think Jack... At one point, Beth was single for a brief period of time, and I was 15, and she was 25, and I asked that her out. after we dated. I asked her out. Yeah. Because Beth I, and I dated, she I, was How 18. delusional was I? Oh, not delusional at all. I was 15, and she that, was 25. That doesn't matter. I w when I was 16, I was dating a 28-year-old, so. Well, yeah. you know, that's how they do things out in Sterling. No, no, no. That was in Berlin, Maryland. Well, uh, and no, I guess I was—I wasn't sixteen. I was—I had to have been seventeen or eighteen. Still, yeah, but I didn't uh, even—I didn't realize how ridiculous it was. Yeah, and of course, I had people like our friend Jake egging me on, saying it was a great idea. Yeah, yeah, I'd egg you on. I'd be like, yeah, yeah. I guess if you, you know, it's but like she could have gone to jail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't know that. She was really sweet about it, though. Yeah. Um, she basically was like, I'll—I'll right, I'll have to get back to you. Because yeah. I was like, do you want to go out on Friday? Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm busy. I'm like, how about Saturday? <laughs> like, oh, Saturday's no good either. Yeah, you're going to invite her at, like, to pizza at Farrell's or something? <laughs> what yeah. I thought. Uh, well, come pick me up at my mom's. <laughs> so maybe we should end there. We would have to do a part two because I want to ask all about your family now and uh, flying. I know you yeah. have a million stories. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Anytime, really appreciate man. it. Yeah. Great to see you on the West Coast. Yeah, good to be here. Seeing you soon on the East Coast. Yeah, man, I'll be and, there. And uh, thanks. That's all for today.